Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we return to what we might call this section of rejection. Matthew chapter 11, 12, and 13 are chapters focused on a difficult season in the life of Jesus. It was a season when many people were turning away from Him, many people were turning their backs on Him. He had gone through a season of popularity and he was surrounded by crowds who had flocked to hear his teaching, but now he's entering into a season of criticism and disdain and disapproval from voices all around him. It was a lonely season, circumstances were turning unfavorable almost every day, new opposition, new criticism, new voices expressing their disappointment in him and the way he was acting and what he was doing, reports coming to him, I'm sure on a daily basis of people that were turning away and leaving and abandoning him. There was a season, as I said, where he was experiencing lots of favor, huge crowds, huge popularity, people coming and coming from all over to bring their sick, uh, sick and, uh, and ill and crippled and lame and leprous relatives to be healed by him. And of course, he was healing them and doing all kinds of amazing miracles. But now that's run its course. Now he has, if you will, sort of eradicated so many of those problems from much of Galilee and people are losing interest. They're beginning to sour They're finding his preaching distasteful. They're even becoming a little wary of his lifestyle. And this is where Jesus had warned his disciples. Remember back in chapter 10, as he sent them out to prepare for this kind of season, they would need to be prepared because they too would be rejected and criticized. Sons and daughters would turn against their parents. Spouses will turn against each other. Jesus says a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He sent them out with a warning that they're going out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And after he does that, he turns and he's teaching himself while they're out and about doing their ministry. Then he's confronted with, surprisingly, doubts from one of his most devoted followers, John the Baptist, who sends messengers asking whether Jesus is the expected one. Now you have disappointment. Now you have questions coming from from even this corner. It was a difficult time. had to be a difficult time. If you've ever gone through something like that, you understand how lonely it can be. There are seasons... As I said, when Jesus was popular, there were seasons when John was popular. There were huge crowds... There were people even claiming that John was the coming prophet. John 5.35 tells us, or Jesus was speaking to the crowds. He says, you were willing to rejoice for a while in John's light. That was an expression of what had passed over the last three or four years. People were excited. People were clamoring. People were sharing and talking and and. Uh, bringing all their friends to hear John and then eventually to hear Jesus. 
But now as time's gone on, they've become increasingly critical. They reevaluated how they really felt about him. It's not an easy time. There are lots of people who face these kinds of seasons and don't know what to do. There are lots of people who had a season in their life where those around them applauded their Christian morals and commended their devotion and spoke highly of them for all of their uh, deeds of of service, maybe in the church, but now things have changed. Where they once heard compliments, now they hear complaints. They would hear it from their friends. They would hear it from their families. If you guys just wouldn't do this, if you Christians, if the people in your church, if your group didn't just act like this, if they would stop saying this over and over again, if they would be just a little bit more like this, or if they would just loosen up a little bit over here, and it gets, it gets difficult. And there are a lot of people, when they get that kind of pushback, they assume that all of this means that it's time for some sort of adjustment. It might quell the criticisms if they could just uh, maybe accommodate some of these complaints. They, they think that the solution to how to win favor from the critics is ultimately to win them over by accommodating and listening to all of their complaints. If we just respect their voices and, and um, try to make some tactful changes or whatever it might be, then people will see how reasonable we are and hopefully they'll understand how reasonable our message is. So many people think that the way to respond to those kinds of complaints and criticisms is to maybe embrace and adopt some of what's being said. But we come to a passage this morning when Jesus is in the midst of that same kind of season in his own life. And that's not the way he responds. That's not the way he deals with it. He heard the complaints. He heard the criticisms. He knew the rejection. But he sees through it all. He sees through to the proud and stubborn hearts that are behind them. And what he does is he, he takes aim to try to expose the silly excuses that people are giving him for why they're turning away, why they're rejecting. The stubbornness that's down deep, he tries to bring it out to the surface. And when the complaints and the criticisms begin to come... For him or for us or any of those things, the answer we learn from Jesus isn't to adapt your lifestyle to something that's more suitable to the critics or to recast the message in a way that concedes to their complaints. Instead, it is to work hard to help them to see the hypocrisy of their own excuses. Expose the weak rationale that they use to hide what is basically an obstinate heart of unbelief. And he does it with a little story, a little parable, if you will, that he uses to describe the people of his generation and how they're responding to him. It's here in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 16. This is what Jesus says. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children, he says, sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is Jesus' assessment of the excuses of people who are turning away from him. This is his attempt to expose their excuses. His aim with these words, uh, speaking about this generation, which we understand you know, to be sort of an entire group of people living at a particular time, Jesus is referring to obviously those who were living at that time and experiencing his ministry. But we also might take note that when Matthew uses this word, when Jesus uses this word, I should say, in Matthew, it has a maybe a broader sense, a negative sense, really. It's used as a kind of adjective, uh, or I should say it's often used with adjectives to, to uh, convey a negative connotation. Matthew 12, 39 refers to an evil and adulterous generation that's always seeking for a sign, but Jesus says no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. A few verses later, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. A few verses after that, Matthew 12, 45, he calls it this evil generation. Matthew 16, 4, an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign again, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Matthew 17, 17, he calls it a faithful, a faithless and twisted generation. Over in Matthew 23, he warns that this generation is going to receive God's retribution for the many things that it has done against one another. But ultimately, it's in Matthew 24, verse 34, that we get maybe the best insight when he warns that this generation will not pass away until the Son of Man returns. So when you hear all that, you begin to get a sense of what he's talking about when he speaks about this generation is more than just the people at his time. He's talking about an era in the sense of a way of thinking, but it's an era that stretches all the way from the time of John's appearance, at least the time of John's appearance, all the way till the second coming of Christ. It's an era and a way of thinking that extends beyond just this immediate group. It's a way of thinking that governs the minds and the hearts of people all the way up until Jesus' kingdom. In that sense, the way Jesus uses the word generation here, it governs and applies to people from all ages who reject his message. They reject his light because they love their darkness. They reject his way because they insist on their own way. They reject his peace because they love being at enmity with God. They love being at war with God. And of course, they would never characterize it that way, they would never speak of themselves that way. They just make excuses. The problem, the reason they don't believe has nothing to do with their sinful, stubborn hearts in their own characterization. 
It has everything to do with Jesus and has everything to do with those who preach Jesus and everything to do with the way they live or the way they don't live or what the, what the requirements are perceived to be or not to be or whatever it might be. But Jesus sees through all that. He sees through all the excuses. And this is how he assesses this generation. This is his words. The divine insight of the Son of God. And I want you to take notice, really, of three ways he characterizes it. First of all, he exposes their excuses as fickle. He exposes their excuses as fickle. That's what he does with this little story, this little comparison. What shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and playing games. That's his sort of analogy. He compares it to the foolish children in the agora. That's the word in the Greek. That was the place where people would go in the middle of town and they would trade their their wares and they would do business and set up booths and sell their produce and all of those other things. And of course, when they went, they might be setting up to sell all day. They would bring their children along with them because they probably didn't have childcare or maybe even the, the kids were expected to help carry some things. Others would show up to shop But when they all got there on the designated day or maybe a couple of days every week, when they all got there and the parents were busy doing their business, the kids would group up and play games. And Jesus pictures this generation like those kids, uh, like a certain group of them who basically object to everything. They keep refusing to play any of the games. They're not satisfied with any of the games. They don't want to play this. They don't want to play that. They say that they want to play, but they don't like any of the rules. They keep making and changing the rules. I remember those days. You're outside, you're trying to play a game, and there's always this one kid who wants to come and play, but he wants to make up all the rules, and he complains about the game the whole time. He changes the boundary so he's never out of bounds. He comes up with some condition so he's never tagged. And basically, he couldn't deal with losing. So he just keeps changing the rules. So he never loses, never in violation. Well, these kids are kind of like that. This generation, he says, is kind of like that, except this is a whole bunch of adults. And there aren't just a few of them. This is most of them. They're still behaving like this. All they want to do is complain about the rules of the game. They don't like the rules of the game, so they want to shift them. They want to change them. They're fickle. This obviously is an analogy of their response to the gospel. It's an analogy of the unbeliever who's dissatisfied with God, dissatisfied with the gospel message. And whatever reasoning you may give them, or whatever explanation you may give them, whatever appeal you may give them, they're never satisfied. They always have an excuse. Their excuses never quite match up with one another. They say they want this, so you try to give them this. Then they say they want that, and you try to give them that, and they say they want another thing. They want more grace, and so you talk to them about grace, and then they tell you you're naive. So you talk to them about justice and then they say you're judgmental. They want more love, so you give them love and then they say you're trying to make them a project so you can feel better about yourself. You try to dial back the love and good deeds and they say you don't care about them, you forget them, you're insensitive. Whatever you do, they're dissatisfied. Jesus says that's the way this generation is. 
In this particular situation, he compares them to children playing these two games. One's a happy game, the other's a sad game. One's a dancing game, one's a weeping game. There was a a dirge, which was most often associated with funerals, so we assume it's some sort of funeral game, and so therefore we assume the other is probably some sort of wedding game. Those probably weren't the games that you and I played when we were growing up, but in the ancient world, this might have been the biggest social events of the community. Weddings would go on for days. They would bring all these people together. They usually involved the whole village. People didn't have major sporting events or they didn't have theater and all those other things. These were the big events. These are the things that got attention and focus. And so these would bring all these groups together. There were lots of activities. There were lots of meals. There was lots of music and games and dancing full of garments and special clothing, speeches and laughter and all kinds of emotions They were high points for the community, and he pictures these kids wanting to play that out, act that out in some way. Some of them maybe kind of donning some some, uh, play clothes or flowers in their hair or whatever it might be and playing the happy game. In a similar way, funerals were major social events. They weren't obviously happy events, but they were big. They involved most of the village. They were normally big processions or parades that go through the street. In fact, there's a story at one point of Jesus walking into a town as one of these parades was going on. All the crowd gathered there, and he stops the parade in the middle of the street and raises the son of the widow who's carrying her only son to his grave. These were... These were big events filled with sad music, professional wailing women, lots of tears, lots of emotion, lots of gripping scenes. And so Jesus pictures these kids playing, some trying to play a funeral game. And so some kid gets to the market and he goes out and he finds the other kids in the marketplace to see if they want to play a game. And he says, hey, let's play a happy game. Let's play a wedding game. He has his little reed flute there, and he starts to sort of pipe out a tune. The other kids say, that's dumb. That's dumb. We don't want to play that. We play that all the time. We don't feel like playing that. Why do your games always have to be happy? Let's play a different game. So the kid says, okay, well, let's play a sad game then. Let's make a funeral game. So he starts to sing a dirge, and they just scowl. That's dumb. We don't want to play that either. Why are you trying to play a sad game? We don't want to have a sad game. We want to be happy. They're not satisfied. That's the point of the whole analogy. That's this generation. This is their complaints about Jesus and about John. Their excuses for not accepting the message of Jesus or John. They're fickle. They're always shifting. They're always changing. They don't want to be pinned down. It seems like the funeral game probably was John's ministry. He was the one singing the dirge, if you will. He came weeping and mourning. He came preaching a baptism of repentance and talking about the vengeance of God. He talked about immorality and transgressions and violations of the law. He came in order to make people weep for their sins. And there were people who played along at first, but then they started to complain They listened at first, but ultimately they rejected. They made excuses. They said, I don't like that anymore. And then Jesus comes along, and he has a different emphasis. 
He has more of a happy game. He, he, he's all with the outcast and the sinners. He talks about God's mercy and forgiveness. And they don't like that. They're suspicious of him. They see him with these sinners and they imply that he might have loose morals. Maybe he hangs out with them because he wants to be like them. Can't trust this guy. This is sort of the typical stuff. When people don't want to receive the truth, they typically just find some sort of excuse. And when you point out that there's no basis for their excuse, they, they change the subject. They change the excuse. They change the complaint. You know, there are some Christians and there are some organizations that spend their whole life, their whole ministry, trying to bend and shape themselves to all of these complaints and all of these excuses of all the world around them. Maybe thinking somehow, some way, if they can bend themselves enough that they might make a favorable impression and people might turn around. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He responds to the excuses by penetrating through them and showing that they're not coming from a sincere desire for the truth. They're not coming from a sincere desire to know the truth. They're fickle. A number of years ago, a Christian group was holding a convention in a large city and before they went to the city they organized a major outreach they wanted to reach out to the jews the 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 hebrew people in that city and so they encouraged all of the attendees to make it a focus of prayer and while they're in the city to be thinking about and praying about how they could reach out and connect with these jews and share the gospel with them Well, word got out about this and folks were not happy, especially the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, which complained that the Christians were bringing, quote, a message of spiritual narrowness that invites theological hatred, end quote. It's going to encourage hate crimes against Jews, they said. People went on national TV talk shows and talked about what an awful thing it is. And they complained how this shouldn't be something that people engage in. You shouldn't be trying to change people's spiritual convictions. This is the height of arrogance to suggest that the Jews need another religion. They already have a religion. So so basically the message was keep your spiritual opinions to yourself and stop trying to change the the views of other people. That's wrong. That's arrogant. No one ever stopped and asked them why they came on the show to begin with then. They came on the show to do what? To try to change the opinion of these Christians. To try to turn them around and make them see, make them think, make them believe differently. These believers... These Christians were just taking the Bible and working out their faith, their convictions, which tell them that they're supposed to preach the gospel to all nations. And now here you are trying to change their views, the views of these Christians. If someone listening had turned around and said to them, you can't criticize these Christians because in your own words, it's wrong for you to try to change the religious beliefs of others. It's wrong. It's wrong for you to say people are wrong. can't say stuff like that though because if you do the people are just going to pivot and they're going to shift and they're going to change and they're going to find some other excuse why because unbelief is fickle 
Its reasons for rejecting the message of Christianity are not really reasons. They're just excuses. If you answer one excuse, they're going to come up with a new one. Lots of people complain about how Christians try to force their morality on others. Same person will complain at the same time when someone cuts them in line the grocery store or if they get treated unfairly by their professor or by their by their boss they'll complain about how there's no justice in society and you say well wait a minute you you just said it's it's wrong to force morals on others but now you're trying to talk about moral arguments and the wrongs of others why are you doing the same thing that you're condemning and they just give you a blank stare they change the subject See, these are just excuses. These are just high-sounding, moralistic talk, but they don't really have any substance to them because if they had substance to them, they would all point back to God because He is the one who establishes righteousness. He's the one who establishes justice. There is no other source. See, all these reasons are not real reasons. The real reason why people reject the gospel is the stubbornness of their own heart. The real reason is their love for their sin. And so they can be fickle, constantly changing their complaints, uh, trying to avoid being exposed for what's really in their hearts. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's exposing them. That's what he's doing, plain and simple. Secondly, You can see how he exposes their excuses as frivolous. We don't need to spend a lot of time here, but just notice the frivolous nature of their complaints. They refuse to play the game, participate in the work of God in their lives, and their excuses focused on these complaints about the style, the lifestyle, if you will, of Jesus and John. They looked at the habits of Jesus or the habits of John and they really exaggerated them so that they could create these excuses to hide their own hard-heartedness. They called Jesus a drunkard and they said John had a demon. The basis for this was really the different lifestyles of Jesus and John. John, as I said, he came and played the the sad game, the dirge. He was the somber message, the stern message of judgment and repentance. And he came living this austere lifestyle out in the desert, the lifestyle of an ascetic. He he had rough garments of camel's hair and he, he didn't eat or drink, Jesus says. He came neither eating nor drinking, not literally, but But he did go through seasons of fasting. In fact, this became a a point of controversy. You may remember back in chapter 9 because Jesus' disciples didn't fast. And John's disciples did fast. And people couldn't reconcile the different styles that were going on there. And on top of that, I mean, John, when he did eat, he ate what? Locusts dipped in honey, I guess, to make them go down, you know, when they're squirming or... All of this stuff was bizarre. People looked at it as bizarre. Too severe, too rigid. I mean, he wouldn't drink alcohol. Luke 5, 1.15 says the, the angel declared he wouldn't drink alcohol his whole life. He's like the priest in the temple. They didn't drink alcohol. While they were in service, they wanted to model holiness. 
John lived this severe, austere life of self-denial. He was totally disconnected from society. He didn't eat like everyone else. He didn't drink like everyone else. He didn't look like everyone else. He didn't talk like everyone else. He didn't think like everyone else. And so the people looked at all this as bizarre, deranged maybe. I mean, it's some sort of guy out there has got some internal issues, some mental issues, or in those days, they would, often accom- they would often associate it with demon possession, which did happen when someone was demon possessed. They did kind of have a madness about them. They would engage in self-harm and lashing out at others and irrationality and muteness and all kinds of strange things. But they ignored all the other stuff in John's life. They ignored the righteousness, they ignored the power of his rationale and his message. But they made all these excuses because that's really what they wanted to mute. They wanted to mute his message. They weren't really interested in interacting with the truthfulness of it. That was not the point. The point is not to actually engage at a material level in the truthfulness of what he's saying. The point was to create excuses so they didn't have to. And then Jesus comes along, and unlike John, he participates in all the social activities. He went to all the celebrations. He went to the weddings. In fact, his first miracle was at a wedding, changing water into wine, which presumably he drank some of it. He didn't live out in the desert, and he he didn't dress in strange ways. He went to all the social events. He was invited to parties. In fact, in Matthew 9, this, again, was a big point of controversy because he had been invited to a big party at Matthew's house. He didn't do all the things they complained about John not doing, but now, according to his critics, Jesus was doing all the right things, but with the wrong people. He was partying with the wrong people, the greedy tax collectors. He was at the house of a bunch of greedy, sleazy, trashy businessmen who sold their soul to the Romans for a buck. That's the kind of guy he is. And he must be there because he's greedy, because he's sleazy, because he's trashy. These are the kind of people who pounced on the poor and weak. They extorted people. And he hung out with other sinners. He, on a couple of occasions, even had a meal with a known prostitute at the table. And all of this, they said, probably suggests that secretly, secretly, this is what Jesus really desired. He wanted to get in on the greed and the sex. He didn't mind people taking advantage of others. He was willing to eat with them because he must approve of their lifestyle. Again, no real attempt to engage the truth of his message. Just petty, superficial, frivolous complaints. You hear it all the time, you know. I, I don't want to go to church. I mean, those people dress funny. Ill-fitting suits and tacky hair. I don't want to hang out with those people. Just excuses. Thrown up because people ultimately hate the message. They hated John's message of repentance. They hate Jesus' message of forgiveness. 
What they love is their own exalted view of themselves. What they love is the pride of their own opinions. What they love is their own sinful ways. They hated the message of Jesus. They were resentful of the continual emphasis on judgment and repentance. They hated the suggestion that a prostitute or a greedy tax collector could actually be more acceptable to God than they were. And so they manufacture excuses because they had hard, impenetrable hearts. Happens all the time. Happens in every generation. People mock. They mock their friends and their family members who follow Christ and try to proclaim the message. They mock, they sneer, they make excuses. All so that they never really have to deal with the frivolous and fickle excuses or frivolous and fickle facades that try to hide their own sin. Well, very quickly, Jesus also exposes their excuses as foolish. That's what he says. You have all these fickle and foolish excuses, yet at the end, verse 19, wisdom is justified by your deeds. You can make all the excuses you want, but the consequences of your deeds, they're going to catch up to you. They're tracking you down. You can't hide behind your excuses forever. The foolish, destructive pathway you're on will eventually come out. It will come out. You can make excuses to men, but you can't make excuses with the laws of God's kingdom. Your righteousness or your unrighteousness, it's going to be known. And he's saying, drop all of the excuses. Take ownership of your sin. Go through the pain of facing your your rebellion against God. Confess your need for a Savior. And what you realize is all these things that you were criticizing, you suddenly find that they're the pathway of light you find that they're the roadway to rest. You find that they are the place of peace. What they find, those who are willing to drop all the excuses and confess their sin, what they find is a true blessing, the blessing that comes with the wisdom of the gospel. And they reap the benefits. So, This is Jesus' attempt to unmask you, penetrate your excuses. I guess the question is, are you going to keep going on? You're really only fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. You're not fooling Jesus. You're probably not fooling your Christian friends. They see through. They see through your efforts to avoid talking about the things that are destroying your life? That's the question. Jesus, he's exposed you. Will you drop the excuses and follow the pathway of wisdom? Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Just a reminder to you today, if you're visiting with us, we'd love to be able to greet you and meet you.
If we haven't had the chance to do that yet. Down the hallway to our right is our visitor reception. I'll be there when we're done. We'll have some other leaders there. Please give us a joy of being able to hear a little bit about you. Maybe hear if God's working in your life. We'd love to hear that. Any of those things, please give us that chance to greet you. Father, we're grateful for this. We need to see with the penetrating insight of the Savior what our generation is like. We need to hear it because they need to hear the truth. And so when the excuses are thrown up, would you give us the love? Would you give us the patience? Would you give us the endurance to keep gently bringing back the truth, praying that finally they would stop fleeing, that finally they would humble their heart and see the wisdom of God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.